0: Welcome to Bring It In. Our guest today is the author of this book I'm holding up if you're seeing the video, which is Don't Trust Your Gut, Seth stevens David How are you, sir?
1: Very good. Thanks for having me, Henry.
0: Um, this actually is not about intestines, but there is a colonoscopy part of the book.
1: Oh, yeah. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> a lot of people, I didn't even occur to me when the editor came up with the title, Don't Trust Your Gut, and yeah. it didn't even occur to me that the gut showing the news for you know making like how it affects your mood your weight loss that er- right. that people would have that interpretation like i thought when I think trust your gut, I, I think about you using your intuition and everything, and yeah, uh, it's yeah. I, it, it didn't occur to me, but like a few <laughs> people, the first reviews are like, I thought I was going to learn about microbiomes. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, they're really
0: going for it. I was kind of joking, but yeah, I'm no. A couple like, of people yeah. legitimately don't trust your gut
1: these days. Makes them think about their stomach. I guess I don't. know.
0: <laughs> We're kind of inner focused these days. You know, I've been home yeah. alone a lot. You know, yeah. um, all right. must do your bio really fast. So you're a data scientist, author speaker. Um, I read your book. It's right here somewhere, Everybody Lies. Yeah. I'll talk about that in a second, um, which was a New York Times bestseller, an economist book of the year. You've been an op-ed writer for the New York Times, a lecturer at the Wharton School, a Google data scientist. Um, you got degrees from every famous university, and you live in Brooklyn where you are a fan of the Mets, Jets, Leonard Cohen, and the Knicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I usually just say I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it actually I have a section in my last book everybody lies about what gets you hooked on a team. And yeah. for boys it tends to be how good they were uh when you were a kid like around yeah. the age of 8. Uh so I grew up, you know, in the 90s and I think of when I think of the Knicks it's Patrick Ewing and John Starks and Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason uh and you know like and <laughs> but it's been a uh, a rough road for a while now
0: <laughs> there's a at one point i was like in a meeting at nba headquarters and i had written like the 50th article i've written about like how the knicks did something stupid and um and somebody pulled me like look you guys all make all you like smarty pants journalists make fun of james dolan for everything but like but we see the financials and like like he's got a tidy little business over there <laughs> and uh yeah there's
1: like- uh the nets i think i found out that the nets I learned that the Nets had about 50% the ratings of the Knicks this year. Yeah. Uh, Even though the Nets were not as exciting as everyone thought they were going to be, but I think clearly a much more exciting product than the Knicks. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I guess uh, it shows the value of being good for a while and being in a big city. Uh, So they kind of were good. They they won over some lifetime fans with their nineties performance and,
0: so Seth, in your in your earlier book, everybody lies. There's a part; it's just a fact that has just registered in my head so many times, and I've told my kids this. But like the, it's about the mayor of Sochi, when the Olympics were coming to Russia, and oh, that he
1: said there were no gay people <laughs> yeah. in Sochi. Can you tell us yeah. that thing? <laughs> well, no. So I was talking about how like the value of internet data, and I said that is a falsifiable prediction. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Either there uh, in in the internet age, because Google ads you can actually go there and see exactly how many searches there are for gay porn in Sochi, uh, Russia. And uh, there was, uh, you know, I I forget how many were, but I, I maybe I took a, I, sh- I should have taken a screenshot and like shown that the, all the gay porn searches coming yeah, out of Sochi, right, right. Uh, which clearly shows that they were not, uh, that there are plenty of, we have, as Obama put it, we have plenty of gay friends uh, in, in Sochi yeah, and Iran right. was another one where I think uh, the I think there were there was claim that there are no gay people in Iran, and certainly uh, search data or Pornhub data shows that there are gay people in every corner of the un of the of the Earth. So,
0: yeah, I love that. It's just such a good like. It gives you a sense of okay, this mayor is in some political environment where he has to like make this outlandish claim. And twenty years ago, thirty years ago, maybe we all have to be like, oh, yeah, that's what he's saying, right? But now you can just come along and be like. We still have whatever yeah. it was, 4.6% of the, you know, porn searches are for gay porn. So <laughs> yeah. what are we going to do with that? You know? <laughs> like, I kind of love that. Nice job. Um, all right. So this book, Don't Trust Your Gut, has a fair amount, despite it's uh, uh, seeming to be about intestines, apparently, about the NBA because you're an NBA fan. I guess it oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. worked <laughs> yeah. its way in. But um, yeah. there's a little bit about, how, about what we learned from twins about yeah, how to yeah, make the yeah, NBA. Yeah. Can you explain that to us?
1: Yeah. So it's there is uh there's this the way to test whether something's really genetic is utilize twins because twins compared to identical twins compared to either fraternal twins or same sex siblings uh, share 100% of their genes so if a field is really genetic you're going to see basically a lot of identical twins have reached the top of that field and the nba is clearly right up there where there've been 10 pairs of twins in the nba uh i think either nine or ten of them have been identical there's a little debate about joey and stephen graham okay uh but i actually knew this from my uh fandom because i'm a fan of the stanford basketball team Mm. and the stanford basketball team we suck for like 20 years or 10 years and then some seven foot identical twins uh (laughs) appear with really good grades and they joined the Stanford basketball team so it was the Colin twins first and then it was the Lopez yeah. twins uh, yeah. and they kind of save our program uh, but you know basically what it shows is just how uh, dominated the NBA is by genetics which isn't so surprising because the NBA is so so much about height uh, where I and others you try to calculate uh, it seems like each additional inch of height just about doubles your chances of making the NBA. And that's true throughout the height distribution. So a 6-1 person has the twice the chance of making the NBA as a six-foot person. A seven foot person has twice the chances of making the NBA as a 6'11 person. Like just the, the ratio, you're kind of going up and up uh to the point there is some estimates that something like some that's something like one in seven seven footers are in the NBA. We know that height is very, very genetic. Uh so uh the twins in the NBA are kind of a dead giveaway. Uh, that uh, the just how much the NBA is genetic, and the, there are some other sports that also have a dominant are dominated by twins. Uh, track and field, which I didn't know, uh, wrestling, uh, rowing, <laughs> a few others. And then there are a few that don't have a lot of identical twins, which kind of is a giveaway that genetics are much less important. And so things like equestrianism and diving. Uh, there well, have weightlifting been that surprised me. Ident- yeah, well, weightlifting weight, was weightlifting. also that one kind of surprised me because I would have thought. I would have thought weightlifting would be really genetic, but there haven't been identical twins to reach the top to reach, become Olympic weightlifting diver or equestrian athletes. Even though there have been a fair number of ide- of uh, of athletes in those sports that you'd expect if it was just genetic as other sports, you'd see you know at least a few pairs of identical twins uh, in those fields. So, uh, yeah, the, that that's uh, it's it's you're right. It's a don't trust your guts a self help book. <laughs> but I almost can't help myself talking about sports. Like I kind of threw that chapter in, like I'm like, the, I, I want to talk about all the major areas of life. You know, so I have a chapter on marriage and dating and I have a chapter on two chapters on happiness and a chapter on wealth and a chapter on entrepreneurship and luck. And it's like, just cause it's me, there's always going to be, I'm like, well, let me just see something about sports and I'll try to make this self-healthy because I can't spend four years uh, studying stuff and not get into sports because I'll drive myself a little insane because uh, I'm such a a sports nut. So no,
0: oh, it's it's uh, a win for us. Like it's it's great. That's like a justification to have you on the show because you're you best. put someone to be in the <laughs> It's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's
1: there's another section on uh, sports where I talk about this study by uh, Dalton and McCarran. It's one of the. It's a fascinating study. Uh, it's in the section on happiness. Mm -hmm. uh they ping people at different times of the day on iphones and they ask what are you doing who are you with and how happy you are and they did this incredibly clever study where they found sports fans like fans of different teams how does their happiness uh change before during and after a sporting match and you see before a match people tend to get a little happiness boost you're kind of like you get that anticipation okay everybody knows that that mood uh i think uh Ernest Hemingway talked about having t- tickets to the bullfight, like is the best feeling in the world uh, like just you know that that big match uh, that anticipation you get a boost but then uh, what happens during and after the event and you see that if your team loses you lose about I think it's eight points of happiness and if your team I don't a one to 100 scale if your team wins you get about four points of happiness and if they were doing the study for soccer, so they actually also study draws and the average draw, you actually lose happiness uh, relative to having not done, you know, done something else. So basically sports uh, is a little bit of a negative uh, bet from a happiness perspective, which I think a lot of sports fans c- can relate to. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, I can, <laughs> I have a horrible memory from my childhood, uh, when the Knicks lost a uh, game seven of the series against the Houston Rockets. Uh, they, they were up three, two, and then they lost game six in a, you know, in a last second. And then they lost game seven. I think John Starks just like went ice cold, which tends to happen. And I threw the phone. <laughs> My parents had a cordless phone. I threw the phone against the wall. I broke the wall. I was having like a temper tantrum. Uh, and, you know, it was one of the more painful moments of my childhood. And I compare that to, you know, when they when they made the finals or when they won a big game, it didn't give quite the same uh, pleasure. So I think it us doesn't sports like fans create
0: doing, a new wall and phone, right? It just, <laughs> yeah, that, like, that's a <laughs> good way to think about
1: it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so us sports fans, you know, I did actually read that. To be honest, I'm like so into data analysis that I do make changes based on uh, like what I read, and I have sure. found myself watching. So the other the the other thing that I learned from the this research from uh this was a study from McCarron and Bryson that watching sporting events on average tends to make people pretty happy. So the problem seems to be when we watch games of teams we're fans of, not necessarily watching sporting events in general. So if I watch, you know, the uh, Warriors and the Grizzlies, and I don't have care who wins. I could just enjoy. Wow, Steph Curry's an amazing player. John Morant's an amazing player. Uh, I don't have this attachment to it. So since uh, reading these, this this research, I have found myself making adjustments where I'm less likely, uh, you know, to watch a Mets game or a Yankees game or th- I, I watch fewer, uh, you know, Knicks games this year, <laughs> and you know, I'm watching more of. Okay, let me watch. Uh, a, a box game and see you know one of these great all-time players and let me see, uh, you know, l- let me watch a Dallas game. It's it's a little more less fraught and you can kind of enjoy the majesty of the players and uh avoid this trap that ends up with you throwing <laughs> your phone into a wall.
0: <laughs> it can happen. Um, so I love this um, mappiness You talk about this. Research. Yeah, amazing. Wait, this, totally revolutionary. A, I mean there's this picture. Do you don't do you really have a phone yeah. case? That really you really do? Uh
1: I I really I I really do have a phone case with uh with so a, tell us about that. What's a, the, what tell so, us about
0: that list on your phone case?
1: <laughs> the happiness activity chart uh is uh a chart that tells you the activity how much act how much happiness uh different activities give you and
0: uh based on like they they have uh, pinged like yeah, so 3 million it's, data points George
1: cardiz George and Zanamirato, they have they've asked 60,000 people uh w- what 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 they're doing who they're with and how happy they are and they're pinging people and they found uh the app the average a- a- happiness of uh 20 different uh oh, 40 different activities uh so actually I don't have the phone case with me but uh, I got the so list I, I here, It's ch- like I could I mean, show you. Yeah. I, I
0: asked just for fun. I asked like some people, I'm like, what do you think number one was? And it's funny because everyone kind of knows it's probably going to be having sex, but nobody wants to say it.
1: <laughs> but, like <laughs> oh, it was number
0: one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I kind of uh, said
1: it's kind of amusing because you kind of imagine, like I was thinking about their methodology and I'm like, wait, <laughs> are they asking people, like, are people stopping sex to be like, <laughs> and, and you actually look at the methodology closer and it's uh, waiting you can have up to like 60 minutes to respond so uh you know you could actually finish the sexual activity and then but but i totally yeah. agree i'm glad that people react to this i i think that this is like a nobel prize winning achievement cuz like like i read probably a thousand happiness studies when i was do i, 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 I don't know I'm, i however many i read a lot i i, I don't know that's not something i've data on but i read a whole bunch of happiness studies. And some of them are so unconvincing. They're kind of just like, they have a bunch, few undergrads in a room and they're like, you know, like giving them these con- very contrived experiments. And then I'm like, and then I somehow, I don't know where I read about mappiness. I called up, I, it was during the pandemic. So I talked a couple of times to George McCarran, and I'm like, holy cow, your studies are just like way better than everybody else's. There are a couple others. There's track your happiness. There's happy air. Uh, in a similar vein, uh, mm-hmm. the Mappiness one is the biggest. And it's just like, it's just like, oh my God, like we can now know the f- happiness of the 40 activities or one of my favorite studies, uh, McCarran and Murado, they compare the same person doing the same activity with the same people and they compare it to GPS data mm-hmm. of the ground cover of where they are. It's uh, the so like, like
0: marginal aquatic boundaries or something what's the phrase Yeah ma- yeah, uh, yeah
1: marine right. marine uh, yeah they have, they're they're Brit- the project is british so they have these things like uh heathland and moors and i'm like uh what the heck is heathland and moors i to like, we don't really do like that i need here, to find you know? these things out <laughs> what
0: we don't really do heathland and moors in the us yeah we don't do heathland
1: like- and moors <laughs> but the big benefit is being by a lake uh being by a body of water and i'm just like how cool is that? Like, how is that not like, it, it just, so it just blew me away. Uh, and you know, with 3 million data points, I mean, these things are really like statistically significant and very tight. It's like, it like legitimately is true that the same person doing the same activity is happier with, uh, you, you know, in a, by a lake. Yeah. Uh, and I've made different decisions based on that. I've, Take more walks to water. I actually live right by a body of water now. Uh, Wait, uh, because I'm, of I'm the ready. research? I, I don't. I don't know if it was. I should say that because it makes for a better story. I don't know if it was entirely intentional, but it maybe was a tie-breaking factor. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I definitely do take walks uh, to the to the river. Uh, whereas I used to, I used to go to parks or just like walk down busy streets, right. uh, and now I take uh, <laughs> I, I take walks to the river, which is pretty close to me. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, I, 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 it, I'm, I'm, totally with you that I, I was hoping that people would be as excited by this project as I was because, um, it's rare. I come across like a methodology that I'm just like, oh my God, that's totally revolutionary. And that, uh, like, I just can believe everything you're telling me. Uh, and yeah. it's on this incredibly important topic of, uh, you know, what makes human beings happy. So
0: just to give, I'm going to give people a little bit of the sense of the list that's on your phone case. Um, Number one, uh, we discussed. Uh, Number two is like theater, dance, concert. Um, Number three, going to museum or library. Number four, sports, running, and exercise. This is like 8.12, whereas (laughs) the highest score is 14.2. And just for a comparison, like eating, people love eating, (laughs) is like 2.38. So Yes, this is really so good for ba- basketball comes out really good in this, not so bad. this form of well, it, playing, right? basketball,
1: playing basketball, playing is basketball is great. Yeah, I think we but I think the average person is not like, I don't know if LeBron James was in the sample. So we'd have to, uh, <laughs> we'd have to it'd be interesting difference in playing professionally and pre- when the whole world's like watching you versus playing recreationally. But
0: but then when we get down to like you point out like all the things that. I guess I saw it as like, you know, when you're at work and you're doing some difficult thing, you'd rather be like, you know, lying on the couch, watching TV or whatever, or, or, but all those things where you're alone and consuming media are just score average low. And terrible, and right? Like
1: I did the exact, I had the exact same idea what, that you did. So once I saw this table, I'm like, we should just ask everybody, like, what are the activity? What how? What are the happiest activities? The unhappiest activity? I think Henry's. I'm back. So I'm like, what are the happiness? and The unhappy activities? And, uh, and like just see what are the underrated and overrated activities? And I did this with my friend Spencer Greenberg. And some of those like really passive activities, people massively overrated. So people thought that watching TV would, uh, sleeping, resting, relaxing. Like people thought that was one of the single happiest activities. And when you actually look at uh, where it ranks, it's not that good at all. And then like sports running exercise, people didn't view that as, I forget, is it number three or something? People were not
0: like that's number number three
1: or number four. four, yeah. Yeah, people were not like that's number four. And one of the lessons I took from that is if you want to be happier, we all know the feeling of you're invited to something and it feels like a lot of work. Like I have this, I have an exercise session planned at 3 PM and I'm like, all I want to do is not go and like read a book or uh, listen to a basketball podcast or, you know, something like anything, but this exercise session. Uh, And I think we have to overrule that instinct to be happier is you have to kind of that feeling of, ugh, I don't want to do it. You know, my read of the data is that that's a, a dangerous feeling cuz you know li- lying around on your couch uh resting relaxing playing a computer game uh you know they're not watching tv watching netflix they're really not giving you as much happiness as you might suspect uh so uh, yeah it's, hey, that's,
0: it's, um it's uh when i was in high school i was waiting to meet my my uh, advisor, who was a librarian, I'm just standing in the library, and I and like I'm pretty sure it was the Bhagavad Gita, which is like a sacred text of India, right? It was on the shelf. I'm like, oh, let me take a look at this, right? And um and I read maybe a sentence before she's like she was ready to see me, but it was the sentence was something like someone who really knows this can correct everything about this because it might not even be that book. But um basically, like some experiences are like lemon at the start and honey at the end, and some are honey at the start and lemon at the end.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And I was like, that has affected me. I was maybe 14 when I read that. But I'm like, "It's a uh, exercise is totally like that. At the end of exercise, I'm like, irrepressibly happy, right? And, you know, you don't always feel like going. You don't always feel like putting those running shoes on or whatever, right? And uh, it's just, there's a lot of things in life like that. And it seems like a lot of them are showing up in this uh, mappiness project.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's still a... It's a hard one to implement. So they're interesting. There are some pieces of data where it's like just knowing the data. I think you can make better decisions based on that. Right. And there are some things where knowing the data is like only the start. So, like uh, you know, not eating processed food or something. Processed food is really bad for you. It's good to know, but it's also if you have a bag of Doritos in front of you, you're doomed. You can know all the data in the world. <laughs> <laughs> And you're not going to do it. So like when I'm deciding, I have a window cleaner right next to me. Oh. Welcome to living in New York. Yeah. Uh, are you in New York too?
0: I'm in New Jersey. No.
1: Okay, New Jersey. For the
0: lakes, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, so like if if I'm deciding whether to take a walk on a busy street or by a lake, like I don't I don't really have a strong draw to the busy street. I just kind of thought I liked Fulton Street right next to me. And I'm like, you know what? If the data says... Being by water is really good. I'm gonna take a you know a walk by the water, see if I can bathe in this uh, nature, you know, a little bit. But being told that exercise makes people happy, like I, it's not. It's still I'm still fighting the instinct. Uh, like it's still hard to implement, and I still find myself sometimes just lying on the couch when I should be exercising.
0: <laughs> this study kind of like this time of year actually is the. For me, as a basketball writer, right, so it's very common this time of year for it to be beautiful outside, and I am short of sleep and up late and just watching TV in a darkened room for like giant amounts of time. You know, in the first round of the playoffs, you might have three or four games you're supposed to watch a night, right? And um, and then you kind of walk outside at some point, like blinking into like the fir- the spring day that the rest of the world's been so excited for, and you're like, what am I? Oh, what's going on? Like, I need to go back to bed. And Like, it's just. It's a really good portrait of like, you know, a lot of people think they want to watch basketball and I like watching basketball, but it's, doesn't make you happy. <laughs> Not in that kind I of think, quantity. Like my
1: read, I don't know if you had the same read. So I include like all, I, I include the the fundamental charts from the mappiness project and people can kind of make their own interpretations and people are already coming back with like things they've seen in the data that I didn't even notice, but I have the happiness activity chart. The happiness people chart. I just want to you know keep. It's George McCarran, Susana Morado, others who did this research who get all the credit for it. But my interpretation of it, and I don't know if this is your interpretation as well, is like, oh yeah, we're just hunter gatherers. Oh, like you kind of look at those those charts and like, you know, having sex, uh, exercising, even hunting, <laughs> fishing is one of the highest activities. Being yeah. by a lake, like being with your friends and romantic partner. And then like the things that are low are these modern inventions, like queuing, waiting, uh, like do, doing, uh, I forget, the the lowest things are very uh, frequently, the work, obviously, uh, their yeah. chores, they're like, they're seminars, the administrative Minus
0: 1.5. Seminars, meetings, <laughs> it's just like so
1: modern. Like the, the oh, top, God. and I, I think like that's and that's like something we have to keep in mind that we are evolved from hunter gatherer lifestyle. I think you do see that in the data that the modern world is uh putting these things in front of us uh and and you know and even the modern leisure activities uh you know being on computers, playing iPhone games, uh watching TV like they're not giving the same pleasure as gardening or hunting and fishing uh, or running around uh, the things that we probably did, you know, when we evolved, I think there, that was definitely one of the big interpretations, you know, the big things I took from those charts. Uh,
0: This is such a win for like the people who say we should just eat like animals we catch with our bare hands and stuff. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's,
1: and, and there is something about like these charts that does you know, I, I think I call the last chapter the misery-inducing traps of modern life, and I think yeah. there are there is something about these charts that you know do, do, does make you realize, okay, modern society is putting these things in front of us that you know might taste good in the moment. you know, spending day a day in a blackened room uh, watching TV, like the hunter gatherers weren't doing that, and you know, as far as I can see, the data is not really. Uh, supporting that as a path to happiness. So it's really something you got to do with care.
0: Yeah. There's also right out of the same study, there's some interesting stuff about work, which made me think about the MBA too. So um, mostly work <laughs> makes people miserable. You actually, like, I remember reading that Camus thing about Sisyphus I, like a long time ago and uh, just pushing the rock up the hill and the misery of work. Right. But then yeah. uh, your interpretation of the data, the things that make it better um music, Working from home and working with friends makes a giant difference.
1: Friends. Friends is huge. Well, friend, the thing about friends is just friends is the big booster in every dimension of life. So just about any activity is way better with friends, including work. Uh, so, uh, you know, I definitely, yeah, I, I say that they should rewrite the myth of Sisyphus because Camus ends that story. says, Sisyphus is happy. And I say, no, Sisyphus isn't happy at all. Look at the happiness activity chart. Uh, work is the second most miserable activity. It just beats uh, being sick in bed. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, the, myth, the myth of Sisyphus and Sisyphus. <laughs> <laughs> if you have two friends working together, you're pushing this folder up the, acti- the hill. And I think everybody can relate to that. And that's made me massively rethink uh my life because my life is so solitary like writing these books I'm by myself all day and like even the one study I I you know I did in this book I did one with Spencer Greenberg and it was just so much more fun because it's like Spencer's a friend of mine it's like we can go back and forth and like I think also when you're by yourself like it's much more when you're writing a book like anybody probably knows this feeling you feel so much on the line Uh, when you, and when you have friends, you're all kind of defending each other. Like if I had written this, I'm almost like rethinking this. Should I have written this book with a friend? And then all these things I'm panicked about, there's a mistake in the work. Like, you know, this person's going to be pissed at me. My interpretation's wrong. Like that wasn't funny. Like if it was with a friend, you kind of have someone to bounce that around off of you. You're kind of going at it together. And you're not that, that feeling of being alone, I think is a dangerous feeling that, uh, you know, for in in modern life. And you know, something I, I think, you know, I I, I do have to rethink, uh, you know, the, the having, uh, the, the, how much of my work life is spent, how much of my life is spent alone, uh, you know, based on the data where uh, the, the friends are just so important for happiness. Uh, you know, anyway, you the other thing, I didn't even include this in the book, I found out these studies later, they've compared the benefit of being with other people for self-described introverts and extroverts. Mm -hmm. And introverts and extroverts actually get the same boost. They both get a big boost and it's exactly the same from being with other people versus being by themselves. So even people like myself who think we're introverts, we got to be careful because it may be like lying on a couch watching TV uh, where it feels like something we need or want. And the data says it's maybe not such a good idea.
0: Yeah. I mean, so many, I feel like we, Work ourselves a bit. So many people I know are so wound well up about like. Well, I was just part of a conversation about like, you know, the person next to you when you fly is like just riddles people with anxiety, right? It's like, oh, this person's gonna take their shoes off, or they're gonna come into my zone, or they're gonna, you know, whatever. And but like, but everybody loves going places. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, no one comes back from Hawaii with like, oh, it totally wasn't worth it because there was a person I didn't like sitting next to me in the seat. It's like, it's, it's, I, we we just I have, also
1: didn't even include I, yeah just speaking of Hawaii, I didn't include, they've done studies. Uh, the Track Your Happiness Project which is a similar project to Mappiness. They studied the benefit people get from every type of purchase. And the number one uh, most value per dollar is travel. Oh, wow. Uh, so, I yeah, I, I really should have, I wish I had included that chart in the, in the book, the happiness purchase chart. Yeah. Sponsored uh, and the, by United. And, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's and the things that don't, tend to give you a pleasure are like basically stuff. So uh electronic goods, uh jewelry, clothes, uh, they're not really a happiness per dollar, they're very low. Uh whereas a trip, happiness per dollar is very high.
0: Right, right, right. That makes sense. Um you're arguing a little bit for your your Paleolithic thing now extends into um tribalism, right? Because you're basically saying friends, right? If you have people so you don't work alone, right? This is another Paleolithic thing, I guess. Um, yeah,
1: I, I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, now that I think about it, yeah, hunters and gatherers probably didn't go on hunting trips themselves. It it is interesting. It is you look at those charts. It really is eye opening how the modern stuff ranks so low, and the old fashioned stuff ranks so high.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's your yeah. That's a kind of a big takeaway. Um, It's not been um, great for basketball, this research, but I guess like a basketball viewing, right? Like where we, the, I think you actually have like a subhead, which is like the trap of being a sports fan.
1: Well, no, except but the takeaways, I think it's the danger is if you're, you're rooting, if you care too much about the outcome. So the negative seems to come when you're rooting for teams, you're a fan of, Uh, yeah, I think it's a very dangerous uh, path to happiness and, the, studies, the study Dalton and McCarran, again, the map using the Happiness Project, found that you lose points in happiness on average from watching a sporting event that you care about.
0: Um, so the working with friends thing let me think about, like the NBA, I mean, I've been doing this too long, but like a sort of hang-up that I have is the draft, where um, it's hard to get people to talk honestly about it, but there's a lot of signs that like, people are very unhappy in the NBA. And part of it is because there's like, just such a weird competitive work environment with very low trust, right? Like, like the they write these stories about like you know the the thirty four year old veteran will help the twenty one year old you know incomer It's like why? Like it's they're they're completely gunning for the same job, the same future contract dollars. It's like you know, the roster spot is so precious, and the worst thing for the thirty four year old is the twenty one is good, right? And like so, there's just a high degree of suspicion and even. You know, the minutes are the precious resource and on and on. And um, it just struck me that, like, maybe this, like, working with friends boost, which we as fans perceive as, like, oh, you're all wearing the same uniforms. You're all on the same team. Like, we think that they'd have that in the NBA, but I feel like maybe they really don't. And maybe, well, maybe I mean, then it has Maybe,
1: hasn't... maybe it, it's interesting. Maybe it also says that the these star players who choose to right. work with their friends, like, we, everyone's criticizing LeBron because he you know, forced the Lakers to pick up all his aging friends. Uh, Maybe it was actually good for LeBron's happiness. Uh, Even if he's uh, losing more games, at least he's playing with his good friends.
0: Yeah, I kind of... I mean, I feel like we all want to be around people we trust, right? And, like, I kind of get that if you have LeBron's influence, you might spend some of it
1: on that very valuable feeling. So, I never even thought about that 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 until the true who podcast but it's
0: there you go <laughs> um uh all right you also a while ago you you've done a little bit of research on like how you make the nba and yeah um, yeah, yeah. um and actually there was something about zip codes which is a while ago um and let's see yeah. Per capita income, like growing up in a wealthier neighborhood, is a major positive yeah. predictor of reaching the NBA for both black and white men. Yeah. Um, what do you make of
1: that? It makes sense. It for for some reason the opposite idea was in the air for a while, where people said that uh, you want to like it, people from the suburbs will never make the NBA because they don't care enough, and you know people from the ghetto are. Hungrier, And I think it's just not true in the data and that uh, there, there are all these clues. Another, my favorite clue is that uh, <laughs> African-American uh, males from lower socioeconomic status are more likely to have unique names, which are names that aren't given to anyone else. So LeBron would, would be a unique name. There wasn't any Le- other LeBron, uh, whereas names like Chris uh, or Michael, Are not obviously non-unique names. Many other people have them. I actually went to Ancestry.com and I found that uh, NBA players are uh, more likely to more likely to have common names than unique names, which is a Mm -hmm. giveaway for the socioeconomics of the NBA. Uh, And I think what I took from that is that socioeconomics uh, are just like basically it's always good. Socioeconomics is just about always an advantage uh you know having a two-parent home uh having middle-income family or upper middle-class family uh having a non-teenage mother like they help build all these one of the things that we've kind of learned scientists have learned is that uh socioeconomics is really important for building non-cognitive skills even more than cognitive skills Mm. so things like trust as you mentioned discipline uh and those are really, really important if you want to make the NBA. I think my first book, I talked the story of Doug Wren, who came from a very difficult background and uh, was considered one of the great players uh, and it never great prospects. And it never came together, in part because he kept on getting in fights with his coaches. Uh, and I think coming from a tougher background uh, it does lead to maybe worse non-cognitive skills, more behavioral problems, uh, all the things that we kind of learned from, uh, from others. That in other studies have shown, uh, you know, how much your backgrounds can matter, your zip code can matter. So kind of why wouldn't it also matter in the NBA, uh, which also relies on not just the genetics that I t- talked about, uh, you know, your height, but also uh, trust, discipline, yeah, this, hard work, regulating emotions.
0: There's this part of LeBron's life story that like is not as well told, but I just, I think about it all the time. So LeBron had this very wild and unstable youth which he's talked about some right and he would like ride his bike because he felt safer there than anywhere else he could call home right he'd just be riding his bike around which is why he has this big bike event Um, but then in middle school he went to stay with his family um, and the family basically you know with his mom's permission um, they were like discipline is the secret to success like you know, we're gonna have like room checks and you're gonna have a super clean room and, you know, your homework's gonna be done super early and just like everything became like kind of OCD, right? And and uh, to this day, he will openly talk about how like that to him is the method of success and the only method of success, which I think is part of the reason, um, I wrote a whole long research-based thing on this, but like, you know, he has rejected young teammates throughout his career because they're sometimes late. And there's sometimes like, you know, he just, it drives him crazy. So this is, I think why he's always had older teammates. Cause he's like, here's someone who's shown up on time or early, like a thousand times in a row. And his name is Mike Miller and he can be my teammate. Right. Whereas like, you know, there are very useful young players, but like LeBron just doesn't want to mess around with like Michael Beasley, who was super talented, but you know, maybe would have been great alongside LeBron, but like, ah, it's not you know, they draft, they got, um, the pick that became Andrew Wiggins, right? And then they traded it for Kevin Love. He always, he's always been, you know, they just, Lakers traded all of his, you know, Kyle Kuzma and Josh Hart, all those guys, you know, for old players, basically. Um, but I think there's a little bit of this, like- It's actually,
1: uh, so there's also research to talk a little about the book, uh, Don't Trust Your Gut, about uh, the value of your neighborhood and role models. And they found, this wasn't a study of basketball, but they found that African-American kids who grow up on blocks- with black fathers, even if their father's not around, you do—they have way better life outcomes. Huh. Uh, which kind of shows uh, maybe that's similar to the LeBron story of uh, being around other people can uh, the neighbors, your neighbors uh, can inspire you and change your life uh, in ways you might not realize. So huh. that's interesting. Uh, yeah.
0: So how how does your how do your conclusions here kind of fit in this like rolling debate between like Malcolm Gladwell and 10,000 hours and David Epstein. And like, I know no, it's kind of like, there's been, it's been going on for more than a decade now, but like, you know, can you fit us in with like, don't trust your gut? How do you, how do you fit into that?
1: I don't know. Everyone's like, this is the anti Malcolm Gladwell. Cause Malcolm Gladwell wrote the book blank. Right. That thin uh,
0: slicing. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. Cause if you read the book, don't trust your gut was like is like a provocative title, uh, meant to get grab people's attention. Uh, that's not really the book's not really talking about thin slicing. When you should use thin slicing, when you shouldn't use thin slicing. It's more like here are some interesting charts uh, and here are some <laughs> interesting figures uh, that I think can be helpful in making a decision. So you know, knowing the activities that make people happier, knowing uh, you know all these other things, uh, the qualities that make for a good romantic partner. Or, uh, the, the, the what the neighborhoods that are best for raising kids and uh i i i i don't i don't worry about where where i fit in with the you know the others that came before me it's more just like that's a question that's interesting i talk a little bit you know uh the sports gene uh was david epstein's book where he criticized the ten thousand hours idea showing how genetic sports are and i guess the extent i'm entering that conversation. I'm just saying that the genetics of sports seem to vary a lot, uh, which, you know, David Epstein doesn't necessarily get into as much in the book uh, with this identical twins stuff, which I think is pretty clear that equestrianism uh, is not quite uh, as genetic as basketball. So putting your 10,000 hours in and hoping to be an NBA player, like it's not, it's probably not going to happen. You know, it's pretty clear that Genetics are almost all determinative in the NBA. Uh, But putting your 10,000 hours to try to be an equestrianism rider or a diver uh, or maybe even a weightlifter, I think you probably have more chance. So I think, uh, you know, I think the, you know, a lot of these questions and and similar with the whole idea of thin slicing, using your gut, not using your gut. Almost always the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no, Uh, and kind of understanding the situations in which is true and not true. So uh, will practice lead to success? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, Should you trust your gut? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, And, you know, I think this book is more, I'd like to think somewhat nuanced in, uh, you know, uh, giving you the, 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 not like a one size fits all rule uh, that's, you know, that could get you in trouble.
0: Sure, sure. Actually, you just reminded me, i thought this was so cool if i'm remembering it correctly like when twins are coming into the draft they're generally projected to be oh, yeah. like pretty different but then they perform the same basically is that yeah yeah is that right? yeah that's
1: it was a little bit of a small sample study but i looked at there have only been three times where twins were massively valued differently and they ended up performing uh, much more similar than their draft order predicted that is <laughs> so, I'm like, so yeah, you crazy just assume, you just assumed yeah the same thing <laughs> <laughs>
0: take either twin it'll be about the same for your team um actually i had a little this could be totally wrong but it wouldn't totally shock me if like one twin is playing well in milwaukee then the one who's in phoenix the there might feel a little pressure to give him more minutes you know what i mean like oh uh, interesting you see what I'm saying? like like if you're yeah. the team that can't get good performance out of one of the brothers or whatever, then like it might reflect badly on you. So they
1: might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's so like NBA genetics are just so, so, so important. I was doing like a study. I built this whole model. It never made it to the final version of the book where I was trying to like build a model of genetics, nurture and other factors. And I'm like, I think I have some, I had some paragraphs that were pretty interesting where I'm like, it's pretty clear that No NBA player, nobody who didn't have a top 1,000 genetics in their birth year has ever reached the NBA. I mean, there are some assumptions necessary for that, but it's pretty clear that like if you ranked people, uh, you know, one to, I guess, two million, you ranked every man one to two million, uh, the first based on the their genes. If we knew every gene that went into basketball ability, uh, then the NBA would be sampling among. Entirely among the top thousand of that group, uh, wow. you know, that some people do outperform. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, Doug Wren had great genetics but had a difficult background, and I'm sure Steph Curry, uh, his dad teaching him to shoot from a very young age. Uh, maybe he went from, you know, the 500th best genetic in his birth cohort to the number one player. Uh, but uh, you know, you're moving within this very very small range. Uh, nobody's coming from the, uh, you know, an average genetics for basketball and reaching the NBA, uh, even you know a top thirtieth percentile genetics and reaching the NBA.
0: Wait, talk me. I mean, that's fascinating. Talk me a little bit through how we know that. Like, what I can't even conceive how you would. So it's a little complicated. <laughs> you could it's, know that. Th-
1: that's why I didn't put it because I'm like, I was building this whole model, but basically I was trying to predict. Like, if <laughs> it gets very mathematical, but if you assume that basketball skills are extreme are distributed on normal distribution Mm -hmm. and then you say like how many twins would reach the NBA based on that and how many twins do we actually have in the NBA you can kind of say how much genetics matter how much everything else matters and then once you do that you can do some simulations like I'm talking about of like replaying the worlds based on the genetic influence right Uh, it's it's nobody would have understood what i was doing anyway which is part of the reason i took it out because i'm like this is supposed to be a self-help book i'm like who should you date how can you get rich and i'm like and now i've gotten a simulation where i have normal distributions interacting and i'm like (laughs) and i'm like this is really in my hobby horse but uh you know i I think i might try to write that up somewhere because and maybe get criticism from other scientists if what I'm doing makes any sense. But I really think it's very clear, uh, that, that, uh, that, you know, that's true in the MBA.
0: I feel like, um, okay. So I went to NYU, um, where your dad was one of the professors in my thing, but, um, but with a ton of, uh, acting students, a lot of the people in my freshman dorm were, were acting majors. And it kind of became clear like, there's just an infinite supply of people who could credibly star in a movie. And like 0.01% of them ever get to, right? And so I, which is an inefficient market in a way, right? I think it's a little bit like, you know, at that time, Sarah Jessica Parker, like lived down the block. And it's like, there are 50 people in the building where I lived who could have, I I believe, could have been Sarah Jessica Parker and had her career, right? And just like, she's the one who got that career.
1: Did you see, did, was it like a little bit better? Was there any differentiator or? I
0: have no know judge but just like you know you know sometimes you meet people and you're like this person was born to do this thing right and you know yeah. in, in any field like when acting at nyu in the early 90s i like like i mean it's just it's just an incredible array of talent right and but it's a you know it requires a ton of money to make a movie and so really it was the people with connections to money by and large who got to be in movies by senior year right you have to you have to finance a motion picture by the time you're it's like who gets to do that it's like All the kids from the big houses, you know, (laughs) like they're the ones that get to do that. Um, So uh, I feel like there's some of that in basketball, right? Where, um, you know, there are some stories of like the recruiters came to recruit someone on court one, but they noticed someone on court four. And that person ended up making it to the NBA. There's a few of those, like Joaquin Noah was one of those or whatever, but mostly it's like, you know, I guess what I'm getting at here is. I
1: think 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 it's, it's way more, it's way more genetic in basketball than it is in acting. And to the extent that that phenomenon exists, that people were spotted, it was probably because they were just so tall. So there are all these basketball right. players who got spotted at a young, and like, got kind of picked. Uh, they hadn't played basketball. They did something else at a, as as a kid. I think Dirk Nowitzki was maybe in tennis uh, or soccer. Yeah, uh, Patrick Ewing was soccer. So there are all these players. Uh, Jokic was water polo uh tim duncan was doing something else swimming. Uh, swimming yeah and then like they reach puberty and they're enormous and everyone's right. just like here play basketball and then they become uh hall of famers which i think just shows how much genetics play a role in basketball uh that that, right. that couldn't probably happen in other sports you can't just say like joe schmo can't just look at someone and be like Oh, you should be uh, equestrian athlete, and then they just turned out to be the best equestrian athlete of all time, even though they had been doing it much before. So,
0: right, right. But I guess we don't know if that means genes make you good at basketball or genes make you get spotted, <laughs> right? Like
1: it. Do you know, yeah. so I guess. I guess. Well,
0: like those twins are all t- all tall, almost right. Like they're all. No, tall. a couple was, of them.
1: There were the Morris twins, weren't that weren't that tall? Were they? That, they're pretty the tall. I mean, they're
0: six, nine, six they? ten, I think. Um, okay, they're not 6'3". They? But I guess my point is, like... Interesting. It, I didn't
1: think that. So that's another, that's another interesting dimension, that if the twins are oversampled over among this really tall, right. that, this is what I'm getting that probably yeah. suggests that genetics are much more important among centers than they are among point guards or something. That would be interesting.
0: Or I guess I'm thinking more, like, 100% of the scouts who saw Markeith Morris saw Marcus Morris. Like... He's never going to get missed, right? If Marcus Morris is at the next high school over, maybe they just don't show up to that game, which happens all the time, right? Like It's interesting. Um yeah. I guess I'm I'm worried that twins might be overrepresented in your sample cuz every tall boy with a twin brother, like they both got recruited, right? Like they both got noticed.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I I had I have to think more about that. I don't know. Yeah. I I yeah. I think it's unambiguous. Just looking at the distribution, the fact that height doubles your chance of making the NBA, and height is about eighty percent genetic, already says that genetics are enormously oh, it's important big. in the NBA. And so no, it's definitely certainly uh, height and genetics. We're talking about really really powerful forces. Uh, you know, I I there obviously are other forces. There's the socioeconomic your zip code. Uh, the Doug Ren not making it getting in fights with coaches and I'm sure there are some phenomena. I think there's probably a extra benefit if your father was in the NBA and is coaching you from a young age on shooting mechanics Uh, kind of the Steph Curry story and then there may be some things involving being spotted and uh, you know I think another another way to maybe I should just write a whole book on this because it's all I really care about another way to think about this uh... is yeah Another way to think about this is like uh other countries uh where, where athletes are are coming from if it was entirely genetic we'd assume that the genetics would be even would be like you know distributed pretty equally around the world and you'd see Americans would be represented about as much as any other country uh you know the percentage of nba of Americans uh, would be about uh, in the NBA would be about the same as the percent of Americans in the population. That's clearly right. not true. Uh, there are far more Americans in the NBA than there are Americans in the world. Uh, we, and I, I think it's probably a similar, similarly, there are probably differences around uh, at different positions that it seems to me just thinking about it centers and this uh, seem much more global than point guards. Uh, and probably there's some phenomenon where the genetics are so important in uh, you know, among centers and seven footers that we kind of scour the, or maybe it's that they're spotted. They're more likely to be spotted that we kind of scour the globe to find the most talented seven footers. And we may be missing out on some, uh, you know, potential six foot six, one superstars.
0: Yeah. And I think like, you know, actually we've been, uh, my partner here, David Thorpe has been writing a lot about like big men are suddenly like less important in the NBA. Um, And I think that what the deal is that if you're merely tall, you can get in the game. But if you're like medium-sized, you have to be unbelievably skilled. You have to do 10,000 hours, right? To get in the game. So like, I think genetics alone can get you on the court by getting you to be seven feet tall. But they, you know, you might be
1: super talented. Yeah, I didn't think to do that. I should have looked at the twins. Just thinking through it, I think you're right that the twins are really dominated among... They're the tall, tall people, which suggests yeah. exactly your interpretation that, uh, I think the, you know, the fact that the, the, the Collins twins, the Lopez twins, the Graham twins, uh, you've really been talking about a lot of, uh, very tall, They're pretty um, big, Pairs of twins. Yeah.
0: All right. We should get going. Um, uh, this is the book it's called don't trust your gut. Uh, Seth, thank you so much for being on the show and talking basketball. Come back anytime.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Henry.